You're listening to The Taylor Marshall Show, a special podcast series on the book of Revelation. Today we examine Revelation chapter 21. Next week we'll look at 22 and we'll be complete. But this week we look at the new Jerusalem, the church, the Catholic church coming down from heaven as the revealed bride of Jesus Christ. Howdy, and thank you for tuning in to The Taylor Marshall Show. This is the podcast for everyone who wants to create daily habits and learn enough theology to take their faith to the next level. And today we look at the new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven, prepared by God the Father for God the Son to be his eternal bride. And guess what? She is the Catholic Church. Well, thanks again for tuning in, and good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Today we continue to look at this great manifestation of God's love, his mercy, his kindness, but also his justice in the apocalypse, the book of Revelation. Fortunately, we pretty much just have good news here on the way out in chapters 21 and chapter 22. Today we're going to look at chapter 21 where Christ declares all things new and we see the great city the holy city, the pure city, not like the harlot city that we saw earlier in the apocalypse. This time the city is pure, and she is a pure virgin prepared for Jesus Christ. And as we'll see, she is the Catholic Church. Before we get started into 21, I just want to have a few preliminary comments. You know, I've read the book of Revelation many times. I've studied it in graduate school, and I've very much enjoyed going through the book of Revelation again with you over these last several weeks, actually after these over these last several months. And one thing that I've taken home, and I've mentioned this before, but I just want to reiterate again, is how much the book of Revelation depends on the prophet Ezekiel. Man, you know, I always said before this this uh, commentary that we're doing here on the podcast that the key to the book of Revelation is Daniel. You've got to understand Daniel. And of course, I was thinking of it in terms of my my previous book, The Eternal City, where I talk about uh, how Christianity is emerging out of Judaism, which has become apostate, and has been commissioned by Christ to take over the Roman Empire. And this is why the Catholic Church is the Roman Catholic Church. And I go over all of that in the book, The Eternal City. You can get that on Amazon, Kindle, paperback, however you want it. I really encourage you, if you're into these topics, get that book because I break down a lot of stuff there in the book Eternal City. And so I've always been prejudiced towards the book of Daniel. And and don't get me wrong, Daniel is all over the book of Revelation. But as I've been reading Revelation again and been studying it, I see that Ezekiel, even more than Daniel, is one of the key prophets, or maybe is the key prophet to understanding the apocalypse. Why? Because Ezekiel is the one who shows us that God will, in fact, bring judgment upon Israel and upon Jerusalem. And and much of the language taken out of the book of Revelation comes from Ezekiel, in particular, Ezekiel condemning Jerusalem as an apostate woman, as an apostate bride. I've counted over 100 references in Revelation to Ezekiel. So I think if I ever do this again, I don't know if I will, but if I ever do a major study, or maybe one day I'll write a commentary on the book of Revelation, like a written one, 
I'm really going to spend even more time reading Ezekiel. I'm actually, I've gone back and I'm reading through Ezekiel as I'm reading through the book of Revelation, and it's just amazing. So if you haven't read the book of Ezekiel, I would encourage you to do it. You know, St. Jerome tells us that the Jewish rabbis in the old days would not allow anyone to read Ezekiel unless he was 30 years old, because there's so much symbolism in it, and you can easily get confused. However, I think if you're a Christian and you're able to look at Ezekiel through Christian eyes and having studied the book of Revelation, I think you'll make a lot of progress, and you'll you'll be spiritually uplifted by Ezekiel, by his prophecies. But you'll also see that God is desiring a real covenantal relationship with his people. And if we as his people resist him, there will be a covenantal chastisement. And we see that in the New Testament as well. Well, we're seeing it here in Revelation, to be exact. So I just wanted to start off with that. Ezekiel, it's so key to the book of Revelation. And in fact, it's very important to chapter 21, and that's today's chapter. So let's get started. Really, chapter 21 is divided into two parts, the first eight verses and then the remaining verses. So in this podcast, we'll do the first half of chapter 21, and then we'll do the second half of chapter 21. So let's go ahead and read it as we normally do. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, quote, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Verse 5, And he who sat upon the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without price from the fountain of the water of life. He who conquers shall have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. End quote. All right, the first half of Revelation 21 depicts a new heaven and a new earth. Now, if you look at this in the context of the book of Revelation, what we're seeing, actually we've seen it several times, is a pattern that comes from Ezekiel 37 and 38 and thereafter. In Ezekiel, what we see is a depiction of the dry bones of Israel. They've been scattered all over the earth. So just picture in your mind human bones scattered everywhere of thousands, millions of people. And then God breathes into the bones and gives them life, and flesh comes back on them, and they're resurrected. Then in Ezekiel 38, we have Gog and Magog, which we talked about in the last uh, episode. And they make war against God and his people. And then after that, we have a renewal. 
a new temple, a time of peace, a time of prosperity, a time of spiritual union with God. Now, some people are confused by this idea of a new heaven and a new earth. Now, in Greek, there are two words for new. One is kainos. That's the word used here. Kainos means um, as in new and improved or renewed. Like you took something and you made it even better. That's kainos. The other word is neos. And you know that from, you know, words like neocon and, you know, neo from the matrix, etc., Neos literally means new, as in this is the newest and greatest thing. Like, I have a newborn baby. She is newly born, neos. Okay, so neos means like new as in its existence. Kainos means new and improved, new as in renewed. And here, God uses the word kainos. So the new heavens and the new earth are renewed. And it is Catholic teaching that, you know, when we are resurrected, We will not get brand new bodies that are created out of nothing. We will get our old bodies, but new and improved. Likewise, when it comes to the heavens and the earth, the galaxies, this planet, God is not going to destroy everything and create something ex nihilo, brand new, out of nothing. He's going to take what was there, he's going to take what's natural, and he's going to perfect it by his grace. As St. Thomas Aquinas teaches us, grace perfects nature. Grace heals nature. Grace elevates nature. Grace transforms nature. In fact, Thomas Aquinas will even say grace deifies nature. Not that nature becomes God, but that it's lifted up into the supernatural life of God. That's what we as Catholics believe. So God is going to renew the heavens and the earth. He's going to renew our bodies. Now, St. John looks up in verse 2, and he sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, made ready as a bride, and she's ready for her husband. The idea here is that God the Father has selected a pure virginal bride to be the wife of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, this is in contrast to the blasphemous, sinful whore of Babylon that we saw earlier in the book of Revelation. She was the bride of Christ, She was the bride of God. That's why she's called the whore, the harlot. But she turned away from her husband. She turned away from God. And she committed adultery and fornication with idols and with the pagan nations. With Rome, with Egypt, with Babylon, with Assyria, etc. She became a prostitute, a spiritual prostitute. And so here we see a new woman. And what's interesting is, is... Uh, one of the angels who poured out the chalices of wrath is the one who actually shows John this new bride, this new city. And it was one of those angels that showed John the old um, spiritual harlot, the prostitute, the whore of Babylon. So it's these agents of judgments that are revealing to John both the old harlot and then the new virginal city. By the way, you know, I'm a huge fan of the book of Proverbs. And you if you're a listener to this podcast, you know when we're not doing a commentary on the book of Revelation, we're doing our normal podcast in which I do a proverb of the week. And throughout the book of Proverbs, there are two women who are contrasted back and forth. One is the harlot. She is Lady Folly, and she's she's depicted as a prostitute who stands out in the streets and deceives young men. 
And then the book of Revelation also depicts Lady Wisdom, and she is seen as a virginal, pure personification of that which is good and virtuous and wise. And she is out in the streets trying to teach men how to become holy and righteous. And this is a, a Jewish allegory of two women's who are competing for the hearts of young men. And the book of Revelation, uh, sorry, the book of Proverbs is a book on prudence and teaching young men, and by extension, young women, how to live noble lives. And this is why the book of Proverbs ends with Proverbs 31, which is the ideal w- woman, lady wisdom. And liturgically, we see that woman personified not just in allegory, but historically in the Blessed Virgin Mary, and ideally for Christian men, or for men everywhere, in their Christian and lovely, virtuous wives. This is the um, ideal, this is the plan that God has, has set forth for Adam and Eve, and for every couple on earth, that we would be fruitful, those who have, have been called to matrimony, and that we would be virtuous men and virtuous women, raising up virtuous Offspring. And of course, those who aren't called to biological procreation are called to a spiritual procreation in which they bring up young men and young women in a spiritual uh, fatherhood or motherhood by being examples and by teaching and by guiding in virtue. So here again in Revelation, just as in the book of Proverbs, we see the two women in Jewish uh, wisdom literature being contrasted with one another. And then in verse 3, John hears a loud voice from heaven. We hear this often in Revelation, a loud voice in heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. This goes right back to John's gospel, John chapter 1, where we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word, the Logos, Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, is God. And then a few verses later we see, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And in the Greek there, it is that the word tabernacled among us. The word, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, pitched his tent. He erected his tent among us. And we have the same language here in Revelation. No surprise. John wrote both of them, the apostle. So it says here, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. By the way, this is also an affirmation that Jesus Christ is God. We see it, we often think of John chapter 1 as a great proof text for showing that Jesus Christ is God. He is fully divine. Well, here, once again in Revelation 21 3, we have the same affirmation said in a similar way, but a little bit different. I love verse 4 personally. It says, He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death. So, you know, I think about a good friend that I lost this year, how, how sorrowful was he was a great man, and I think he'll be a, a great saint in heaven. I lost my own grandmother this year, and I think about the tears that I've shed for both of them and for other people and for difficult situations in my life. And to just to know, as it says in the Psalms, you know, God keeps all of our tears in a bottle. He remembers every single tear that is shed. And he will wipe away every tear. That means he will take away all the pain. And he doesn't consider it wasted. God gives meaning to our pain. And he gives meaning to our tears. And he cares about our tears. 
And he will, I, I think of his crucified hand, a hand with the mark of the nails in it, reaching out to my face and wiping away all of those tears. Almost like watching a movie of Christ and seeing all the times of sorrow in my life and then seeing Christ in each of those as he takes away the pain. There will be no longer any death, thank God. There will no longer be any mourning in heaven or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So we know in heaven there will be no pain, no crying, no suffering, no mourning, no tears. It will be pure joy, bliss. That's why it's called the beatific vision. Beatus means blessed, but in Latin it can also just mean happy or in bliss, blessed. Verse 5, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. When I saw the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, I was deeply moved. Um, I was not yet a Catholic. I was a Protestant. I think maybe in some way that movie helped me become a Catholic. I loved in Mel Gibson's movie how he did not forget the Blessed Virgin Mary. He included her throughout the film. And he really kind of had a dialogue there, a silent dialogue between Jesus, I mean, sorry, between Mary and the devil. There's that one moment where during the scourging, Mary looks over and she sees Satan holding a deformed, nasty little baby demon. And what's going on there, if you didn't pick up on it, is Satan is creating a mockery of the Madonna image that we have in Catholic art where Mary is holding, she's beautiful and she has a halo and she's wearing her robes, and she's holding the beautiful Christ child. And they are both holy and immaculate. And what Satan's doing in that image is he's looking at Mary as her son is being beaten, scourged. He's being made ugly. And so Satan is is appearing. He's in a, a feminine form, and he's holding this nasty little demon baby. So he's mocking the incarnation. And that mockery goes throughout the entire film. But at one point, while Christ is carrying the cross, there's a flashback. And you see the Blessed Mother thinking back in time, and she sees the child Jesus. He's about four or five years old, and he's running, and he trips and falls, and he hurts himself. And she, as a mother in her compassion, runs forward and greets her fallen child and comforts him. And then the film switches back, and you see Christ fall to the earth under the weight of the cross, and she runs to him, and she says, I'm here, I'm here. And he looks at her, and he says, Behold, I make all things new. And he stands up, he looks away from her, and he looks at the cross. Literally, he looks at you and me in our sin, and he picks up the cross, and he marches forward. Now, that interchange is not in the Gospels, and his comment to her, Behold, I make all things new, is not found anywhere in the Gospels. It's actually taken from the book of Revelation. And since I'm a, a fan of the book of Revelation, I've been studying it for years, even before I was a Catholic, when I in the movie, when I heard that for the first time, I just broke into tears because I realized that Christ Jesus at that moment is quoting Revelation chapter twenty-one verse five. It's an eschatological quotation that Christ quotes to his mother. Of course, she ultimately is the perfect um, immaculate city of God, but he quotes that. Behold, I am making all things new. So when Christ is carrying the cross. When Christ is being scourged, when Christ has the nails, he feels them going through his feet and his hands, and as he feels his own weight on those nails and in the weight of the sins of the whole world, he is proclaiming as a king and as a priest, behold, 
I am making all things new. So look in your life. There's a bunch of old, nasty things in your life and in my life. And Christ marches in with his cross and the Blessed Mother with him. And he says to you, he wipes away the tears and he says, behold, I am making all things new. So, you know, maybe you have suffered through sexual abuse or physical abuse. Maybe you've gone through a horrible uh, divorce. Maybe you've been abandoned by your spouse. Uh, maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're in economic straits. Maybe you worked really hard on a business and now you're bankrupt. Maybe you're estranged from a parent or estranged from your children. Uh, maybe everything just seems to be going down in a just an awful demonic spiral. Know that Christ is marching into your life. Believe it. Confess it in faith. Stand in faith and say, I believe, Jesus, that you are walking into my life. You are wiping away the tears, and you are proclaiming to my heart, Behold, I make all things new. Take that as a promise. If it, if it helps you, get a note card, write that verse out, Revelation 21.5, and put it on your mirror. Say it every morning. Affirm it. Christ is making your life new. And I would encourage you, if you haven't already, go back and listen to the podcast I did on Did I Miss God's Plan for My Life? You can go into taylormarshall.com and click on Weekly Podcast. Scroll through the archives and click on Did I Miss God's Plan for My Life? Because a lot of us think that we've sinned so much, we've committed so many mortal sins, God has no plan for us, we've already missed our plan. And I want to convince you that that's not true. God still has a plan for you. He can have, he can, he is infinite. He is divine. He is all powerful. He can create an even better plan for you wherever you are right now, even if you only have not long to live. If you, even if you're advanced in life, he can create an amazing plan for your life. Verse six, here's where Christ says he's the alpha and the omega. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter. So it's like Christ saying, I am the A to the Z. I am the beginning and the end. And he says, I will give water of life from a spring without any cost. You don't have to pay anything. It's 100% free. So Christ holds out the cup. He on on the cross said, I thirst so that he could give you the waters of eternal life. By the way, liturgically, this is another reason. There's a lot of Christological reasons, but this is another reason why water is mixed with the wine during the Mass. And seven, he says that those who persevere, those who overcome, will inherit these things. And then he gives the Davidic covenantal promise to all of us. In the Davidic covenant, God said that he would be the father to David, and David would be his sons. And this would go on through the generations, ultimately climaxing in Christ, who is the son of David, who literally is the ontological and metaphysical eternal son of the Father, consubstantial with the Father. But here, you and me get that promise. He says, I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the take-home, big kahuna lottery ticket that we as Christians celebrate. Islam doesn't have this. Judaism doesn't have this. Buddhism doesn't have it. Hinduism doesn't have it. Atheism doesn't have it. Only Christianity has it. And I would argue it's Catholics who major in this. We teach divine sonship or daughterhood. It's called filiation in Latin, which just means son-ation or daughter-ation, right? It's the process or the 
the act of God making us his children. Jesus doesn't call us his slaves. He calls us his brothers and sisters, and he makes God our father, and he makes Mary our mother. So the image of true religion for the Catholic, for the Christian, is that of a family. And therefore, we can call God Abba, Father. Now, in verse 8, he lists eight sins, maybe nine sins, depending on which Bible translation you have. There's a little bit of discrepancy in the Greek manuscripts. Some read nine sins, some read eight uh, kinds of sins. I'll read the nine, and then I'll tell you the difference in them. So it, the, the nine sins in some manuscripts are cowards, unbelievers, sinners, the abominable, murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. That's nine. Now, some manuscripts omit the word sinners. So in that list of nine, one of the words is sinners, and sometimes that word is omitted, and you can kind of understand why. Sinners is kind of generic, while the other ones are specific. So technically, there are eight kinds of sinners listed here, and it reads, But as for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers and fornicators and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Okay, so this is a straight-up teaching on the existence of hell, uh, known as Gehenna or Gehenna, the fiery, burning lake of fire. It will not end. It will go on for eternity. It is not purgatory. And those who are unrepentant sinners in mortal sin will be here forever. How many mortal sins does it take to get to hell? Only one. Only one. You can live a wonderful Catholic life. You can be a bishop. You can be a cardinal. You can be a nun. You can be a homeschool mom, whatever. And then in the final days of your life, you could commit apostasy and become... Uh, you could abandon the Catholic faith and become, you could become a Muslim or you could commit adultery or any of the mortal sins, the grave sins that you do with knowledge and with full will and consent, you lose all the grace. You lose all the merit according to the council of Trent. And if you die in that state, unrepentant, you will be in hell forever. Why am I saying this to you? Because I love you. And because I know you probably have never heard a sermon on it. This is true. It's right here in the book of Revelation. The Catholic Church believes in heaven and hell. We also believe in purgatory. Purgatory is a preparation for heaven. But we do believe in hell. We do believe that people can go there. Jesus Christ says there are people there. Our Lady of Fatima, when she appeared in the early 1900s, showed the children at Fatima people in hell. Saints, popes, Doctors of the church have also seen visions of people in hell. Hell is a real place. We can go there. God doesn't want us to go there. That's why he's given us so much grace, and he's given us the Bible, and he's given us the church, and he's given us the sacraments, and he's given us good teaching. So we must conform to his grace. But if we don't, and we reject the love of God through mortal sin, we will be damned. I want to say that. I want everyone who listens to this podcast to hear that. Hell is for real. And we need to live as if hell is for real and heaven is for real. Okay, so let's look at these sins. And by the way, notice that everything before this is is God saying, I love you, I want to call you my son, my daughter, I want to give you the waters of life, I want to wipe away all the tears from your face, 
right? Death is no more. Pain is no more. Crying is no more. These are the things that God wants to give us. But he tells us at the very end here, look, if you're not going to be my disciple, you can't be with me in heaven. The option, the other option is hell forever. It's your choice. Okay, so the first sin, coward. Cowards. Cowards will not go to heaven. This scares me because I'm thinking to myself, well, if I record this podcast and I talk about hell, people are going to be offended. And what if they stop listening to the podcast and I lose that person? Maybe I should be more gentle. Maybe, maybe I should not talk about the hard things. Maybe I should never mention anything in my writings or my blogs or when I speak. Maybe, maybe if I talk about abortion, that bishop sitting in the front row will be mad at me and he won't ever invite me back. These are the kind of fears that are in my head. These are the kind of things that Satan whispers to me. And says, hey, don't talk about those uncomfortable things like homosexuality and contraception and divorce and usury and all these kind of things that no one wants to mention. And at the end of the day, that is being cowardly. And Christ says the cowardly will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is scary because, you know, a lot of people in the church don't want to talk about these issues because they're afraid. And honestly, I don't want to talk about them either because it isolates people and you lose friends. And I'm always looking for strategies to do it in a loving and a kind way. But sometimes I don't. Sometimes my passions get out of control and sometimes I get heated or angry or sometimes I lose my cool or sometimes I say the wrong thing. And so it's just easier to avoid it. But we can't do that. We are Christians. We are marked with the sign of the cross. Christ said that the world hated him. It's going to hate us too. So just get used to it. You know, Christ said, love your enemies, which means if you don't have any enemies, you're probably not living in God's will. (laughs) You ever thought about that? Love your enemies. That means you will have enemies in life. I have enemies. There are people on the internet who hate me. I love them. I pray for them, but they hate me. So we can't be cowardly. We have to be brave. You know, one of the, the four cardinal virtues is fortitude. Prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. You can, as I teach in the New St. Thomas Institute, peanut butter, jelly, French toast. PJFT, prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance. If you're in the New St. Thomas Institute, make sure you watch the, uh, the video there on the cardinal virtues. I go into all of it in, in depth at NewStThomas.com. But we have to have strength. We have to have fortitude. We have to be brave. Look at the old saints. You know, look at the guys in the early church. Those guys were brave. They weren't cowards. They weren't afraid. They weren't, they weren't trying to be politically correct. They said what was true, and often they died for it. Next, unbelieving. Well, this is obvious. If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in Christ, if you don't have faith, you're not going to be saved. We have to believe in Jesus. Christ over and over calls for our belief, our trust. And by the way, there's two kinds of belief. There's belief in all the dogmas and the truths that God has revealed. Technically, Satan knows all those and believes all those. And then there is the belief that is a personal trust with your heart in God, which says, God, I trust you to help me pay my mortgage, and I trust you to help me raise my kids, and I trust you to help me not get mad at my spouse when they're being a a jerk or upset at me, and I, I trust you to lead me to a good parish, and I trust you to help me find the right religious order. That's the personal kind of face. We need both kind. We need to believe in all the truths. And then we also need to have the personal trust that God's going to lead us in our daily lives. The next one is sinners. And that one's sometimes omitted from the text. Obviously a sinner is a sinner. 
The next one is abominable. Uh, this refers to abominations, things that are disgusting. I think you can probably use your imagination and, and know maybe what what could be meant there, but these are things that are polluted in some um, translations. So this would refer to things like incest. Um, in Leviticus, when it refers to unclean relationships that are impure, it refers to incense, homosexuality, bestiality, uh, masturbation, those kind of sexual sins, uh, things that are abominable according to God. Then there's murderers. We all know that murdering people is bad. You should not do that. Um, but murder can also take its form in, in hatred, wishing for the death of another person, but also in our own time, abortion, and even those who use contraceptives. Contraceptives can be abortive. I'm thinking here especially of the birth control pill. The birth control pill makes a woman's uterus um, sometimes, oftentimes even, chemically resistive, resistant rather to a new embryo. So a sperm and an egg could be, if, if perchance the birth control pill does not prevent ovulation and an egg does drop from an ovary and a man's sperm does come in contact with the egg, you have a conception, you have a human life that's begun there. But because of the birth control pill, uh, her uterus is not able to receive that embryo. So the embryo cannot implant into the uterine wall and that new life dies. It's called a chemical abortion. It was not intended, but still a life died. And it was, it was brought about through the introduction of unnatural pharmaceuticals. The next one's fornication. That is sex outside of marriage. You know, it's really sad to read this, but Catholics in America approve of premarital sex more than Protestants and more than the general population, which means Catholics are more sexually permissive than the population. It's sad. You know, there's an old saying, corruptio optima pessima in Latin. The corruption of the best is the worst. I think that's true for us Catholics. We need to get our, uh, our lives together. The next one is sorcerers. This is, I've talked about this in my books, um, it's again, not something I want to talk about. It's controversial. People are going to get mad. People are going to judge me. People are going to say, why you talk about uncomfortable things? Well, it's in the Bible. It's pharmakeia. Pharmakeia, where we get the word pharmacies. I was just at the pharmacy today. I got my flu shot. Pharmacies are great. But in the old days, pharmakeia referred to drugs and potions primarily used to create sterility, to prevent conception, and to induce abortions. It was associated with witchcraft, and that's why sorcery is used to translate it. It's the use of any kind of drug or potion to bring about um, unnatural results. So pharmakeia. So this would include contraception um, or the use of drugs in any way that's illicit. Um, snorting cocaine, shooting yourself up with heroin, even smoking marijuana. I've done a whole YouTube video on that. Check it out on YouTube at my YouTube station uh, channel, rather, at Dr. Taylor Marshall at YouTube. Um, next one's idolatry. We cannot worship idols. We cannot be involved in superstition. Horoscopes are no bueno. Can't do it. Can't go to palm readings. Can't do it. No Ouija boards. Not only is all that stuff mortal sin, it's also opening you up to the demonic, preternatural spirits who can either oppress your soul or take possession of your body. You don't want that to happen. Don't do it. And then last of all, 
liars. We can never lie as Catholics. We always say the truth because Jesus Christ is the truth, and we must confess the truth at all times. And then it says, Their lot shall be the lake that burned with fire and brimstone. That's the second death. The first death is when you die. The second death is hell. And hopefully none of us ever go there. Okay, so that's the first half of Revelation 21. Now we move on to verse 9. Quote, Then came one of the seven angels who had seven who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of, the, of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the, on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them, the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its breadth, and he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and breadth and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by a man's measure, that is, an angel's. The wall was built of jasper while the city was of pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. In the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light shall the nations walk, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And its gates shall never be shut by day, and there shall be no night there. They shall bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean shall enter it nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. End quote. End of chapter 21. So what we have here is a description of the city. It's highly symbolic, highly allegorical. It's described in terms of jewelry. So the city is a bride, and she is bedecked in jewelry. She is, there's pearls, there's precious stones, there's gold. What I love about this is it says, it says that St. John was carried away in the spirit. So we have a Trinitarian manifestation here in Revelation, as we've seen before. We have God the Father, we have the Son, the Lamb, and then now we have the Spirit who's carrying him away to a great and high mountain. Now, before we saw that the whore of Babylon was seated on seven mountains, that is Rome, and it could be Jerusalem, but here it's a single solitary mountain. It's paradise. This is the place of the Garden of Eden. In the prophets, in the Old Testament, they speak of the Garden of Eden as being perched on a mountaintop. It is lifted up. And this is why most ancient civilizations create their temples as quasi-mountains. That's what the pyramids are. They're meant to be gateways to heaven. Mountains, 
uh, mountains of paradise where God and mankind come together at the pinnacle. But this city doesn't start from the world, from creation, from man, and it's not built up towards the sky as the pharaohs did, but rather this city comes down from the Father. So in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that the city of God has foundations whose architect and builder is God. So God is the chief and sole builder of this new city, and the city is the Catholic Church. Of course, it's heaven, but heaven breaking into this creation in the form of the Catholic Church. Now, in I referred to this in, what was it, two podcasts ago about the destruction of Jerusalem and how on Pentecost in the year uh, 66, so four years before the destruction of Jerusalem, actually about three and a half years to be exact, and if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that three and a half years is 42 months. It's a major uh, apocalyptic theme in, in Daniel and in the book of Revelation. It, it symbolizes a broken seven, a half of a seven. But So three and a half years before the destruction of Jerusalem, Pentecost, A.D. 66, the priest, and we have historical records demonstrating this, and Josephus gives testimony, the people in Jerusalem and the priest heard chariots and horses in the sky, and then they heard a voice saying, we are departing hence. We are leaving this place in the temple, and the glory cloud of God's presence departed. According to some records, it went to the Mount of Olives where Christ had his agony in the garden. This is telling us that God's presence is no longer with the temple. It is no longer with the Mosaic covenant. It is with the new covenant. God's presence is no longer associated with the temple there in Jerusalem and with those sacrifices. God's presence is now within his bride, and his bride is not relegated to a temple. As we see in this passage, there is no tabernacle or temple in the new city of God. Why? Because Christ is present to all of us. Yes, we have a tabernacle, but it's, you know, it's a box where we keep the Eucharist, who is Jesus Christ. So Christ is present with us through the Holy Spirit, with us when we receive communion, but also present in our churches. He is everywhere. Christ is no longer established solely in Jerusalem. So what we're seeing here is the undoing, the unraveling of the Mosaic Covenant, and it being fulfilled or you know, actually sowed into the New Covenant so that Christ fulfills all of the Old Testament, and there is a new city, a new dispensation, a new covenant. Uh, the city is characterized by Jasper, and we've seen you know, previously in the book of Revelation, I think it's chapter 4, Jasper stone is associated with the presence and appearance of God himself. Um, there's a great high wall. Clearly, there's the, the wall is not built to keep enemies out because all of God's enemies have been destroyed and sent to the lake of fire. Rather, the high wall signifies um, a perimeter, a boundary. This is where God is. This is his people. So it's a symbolic boundary. It's not to keep people out. There are 12 gates guarded by 12 angels, and the names of each of the 12 tribes of Israel are inscribed on each gate. So we see that this is not a break from the Old Testament, it is not an abandonment of the Old Testament. Rather, the new covenant fulfills the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant. 
So we're not Marcionites. That's a heresy which rejects the Old Testament, rejects the God of the Old Testament. What we see here is, is God is showing, no, the new city of God, which is distinct from the old Jerusalem, this is the new Jerusalem, still venerates the names of the 12 tribes. And there are three gates to the east, to the north, to the south, and to the west. This comes from, of course, the prophet Ezekiel when he describes the new city um, in which the prince from on high will enter in through the eastern gate, and he will go in with, without even having to open the gate. And he'll go out without opening the gate. And the, Holy, the church fathers use this as a reference to the conception of Christ in the womb by the Holy Spirit and then Christ's birth from the womb of the Virgin Mary without violating her integrity. Or, as the church fathers and saints and popes have said, Christ was born of the Virgin Mary as light passes through glass. So it was not a bloody birth. It was not a painful birth. It was a miraculous birth. I know that's controversial. If you remember the new St. Thomas Institute, we've done a whole class on that. Please consult the Mariology module in new St. Thomas Institute, and I'll give you all the resources and saint quotes uh, justifying that Catholic teaching and belief. Notably, in this same passage, we have the names of the 12 apostles written on the foundations of the new city. This seems to correspond perfectly with Ephesians chapter 2, where St. Paul writes um, that the saints, the Christians, are God's household, where his family, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles, end quote. So St. Paul affirms that the church, the family of God, the household of God, is built on the foundation of the apostles. So John's theology and Paul's theology are in perfect harmony here. I used to be a high school geometry teacher in one of my previous avatars in scholarship. When I was working on my PhD, I would teach classes in the day to help support my family. Uh, at that time, we had, I think it was five children. And so I was working full-time on my PhD, and I was working full-time during the day and even part-time beyond that to help support the family and, and pay the mortgage and all of that. And so I was a geometry teacher for part of that. And I remember one year giving a bonus. It was at a Catholic school, giving a bonus on the final exam. They had, I think it was 24 hours to get back to me on the answer. And that is, what shape is heaven? What geometric shape is heaven? And almost all the students just guessed. They didn't want to do the work. And they put sphere. Because you think a ball, a sphere is round. It's perfect. Heaven would be a sphere. Planets are spheres. Maybe the galaxy is a sphere. I'm going to put sphere. But that's not actually correct. If you look at verses 15 through 17, um, he's told to measure the city. And he says the city is laid out as a square, and it's equal in length, width, and height. The answer, you see, is that heaven, the new city, is a cube. That's right. It's a cube. So there were some students of mine who did, I guess, use Google or search the Bible, did something, and they did find that the new Jerusalem is a perfect cube. Now, why is it a cube? Well, in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies, remember there's the temple. The temple consists of three sections, the outer court, 
the holy place where the menorah is and the bread of presence and the incense and then the holy of holies. The holy of holies was a perfect cube. It was equal in width, length, and height. Perfect. So when God shows us that the whole city is a cube, he's saying the entire city is a holy of holies. No matter where you are in heaven, you are in the holy of holies. You are in God's presence. Remember when Christ died on the cross, the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies was ripped in half from top to bottom. Here we see the city of God coming from top to bottom, from above to below, and the whole city is a cube, just as the holy of holies is a perfect cube. One thing I love about the Eastern Christian tradition is they incorporate a lot of biblical symbolism that has been lost in the West. Earlier this week, I was with my four sons. We were coming home from something. I can't remember what it was. And there's a Romanian Orthodox church right by our home here in Texas. I like to go into this church and pray. I know the Eucharist is there and the iconography is stunning. Uh, It's much prettier than Catholic churches closer to me, which are more modern. I don't like modern architecture. I like old school medieval, as you know. If it's medieval, I think it's good. If you call me medieval, I think it's a compliment. So this church is beautiful. So I wanted to stop in and show my boys. So we went in there and we prayed and we looked at all the icons and a lot of their name saints were on the walls. So we looked at those. And my oldest son, Gabriel, 13, smart kid, he went up by, he was very interested in the iconostasis. So in the Eastern tradition, there's a screen with icons that separates the nave where the people sit from the altar. And Gabriel was very interested in this, so he went up close, and he was looking through the doors to where the altar is. And he said, hey, Dad, their altar is a cube. And I just smiled. I actually didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to talk too much in the church. But the reason why Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Catholic altars are a cube is because of the Book of Revelation. It's also because of the Holy of Holies. Since the altar is where Christ becomes present, the Word becomes flesh in our midst, The altar is in the shape of a cube, equal in length, equal in width, equal in height. And I just think that is awesome. So maybe in the West, we could start building cubic altars to, and also in the Old Testament, altars are seen more as square, not as rectangular. So maybe we can start building cubic altars as they did in the East. I think it's an awesome tradition. And it reminds me, I need to pull my son Gabriel aside and say, hey, remember you how you saw that the altar was a cube. Do you want to know why? And I can give him this, this book of revelation synthesis. Okay. So heaven is a cube. Next time you're at a cocktail party with some Christians, uh, you can bring up this interesting fact and they'll think that you're very intelligent and very smart, very well read in, uh, scripture. It gives 140, uh, four cubits, 144 is 12 times 12. I think by now you know what that means, 12 times 12. You take 12 from the Old Testament, 12 from the New Testament. You got the 12 sons of of Israel, and they got the 12 apostles of Christ. 12 times 12 is 144. So this is not literal. You know, I think someone calculated this out, you know, the size of the city, the, you know, the wall would be 100, uh, 1,500 miles long, and it would be 216 feet high. Look, this is all allegorical. I think you've seen by now that the numbers in the book of Revelation are teaching us spiritual principles. They're not teaching us actual increments of space. 
Uh, then we get into a bunch of precious stones. The gates are made out of pearls, which I think is lovely. Pearls are beautiful. Pearls come from the sea. Pearls are also fragile, which means these gates aren't there to keep out enemies. They're there to be beautiful. They're there to attract people into the city. Uh, the city's made out of gold. The streets are paved with gold. That's not just something from songs or from legend. It actually comes from the book of Revelation. Twelve stones are mentioned. Almost all scholars agree that these twelve stones refer to the twelve precious stones that were on the breastplate of the high priest. Uh, Philo and the historian Josephus link these jewels to these twelve the 12 jewels in the breastplate of the high priest, of course, to the 12 tribes, but also to the 12 um, constellations in the Zodiac. I think that's a valid interpretation. Previously, I've talked about the Zodiac and the constellations and how each of the 12 constellations were assigned to each of the 12 tribes in the way they were arranged in the Pentateuch um, and as they are arranged in relationship to the sun. If you want to learn more about that, I encourage you to go back and listen to all the podcasts here on the book of Revelation. And our chapter ends with, in verse 22, we see that there is no temple. There is no um, need for a sanctuary in the, in the city because it says the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. Jesus Christ is the tabernacle for us. And in the city, there's no sun, there's no moon. Really, it's the glory of God. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He's the one who puts out the light. He's the one who brings us into the beatific vision of God's eternal light. We know that from Scripture. We know that from St. Thomas Aquinas, of course. And by its light, that is the light of Jesus Christ, the Lamb, shall the nations walk, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it, and its gates shall never be shut by day, and there shall be no night there. They shall bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. So what's interesting about this is it's not just a future reality. You know, sometimes we think of heaven as 100% future. In, in reality, you know, Pope Benedict and as Cardinal Ratner talked about a realized eschatology that that which is true in the future also has some truth now. And heaven is breaking out into our time. And this means that nations are being led into the gates of heaven. Who does the leading? The Catholic Church. The Catholic Church should be an open gate. We should be teaching the truth. If we as Catholics hide the truth and we say to people, you don't need to really repent of sexual sins. God is merciful. You don't need to repent. Just keep living in your lifestyle. It's okay. Guess what? We aren't leading people into the truth. We're not. Part of loving people is leading them into th to truths and to realities and opening their eyes to things that are uncomfortable. That's what family does. You know, if I'm really sick and not feeling well, I'm still kind of beating a sinus infection and a, and a cold I had earlier this week. Joy said, hey, I think we need to get you some antibiotics. She doesn't say, oh, honey, you're fine. You're healthy. You could never get sick. No, she knows that for my well-being, I, there needs to be an intervention. You need to go to a doctor. You need to get drugs. There's certain things that are hindrances that I don't want to do because I'm busy, but she realizes that I need to do it. And we, and the same thing happens in our marriage over sins and spiritual discrepancies. Hey, honey, I've really noticed this. 
Are you walking with the Lord? Should we pray together right now? Why do you think these things are coming out in your life? Right? These are the kind of questions that, these are the kind of things that people who love each other say to each other. These are the kind of things that you say to your children. Hey, I noticed you've been hanging out with so-and-so. Um, are you interested in X, Y, Z? Drugs, alcohol, sex, pornography, whatever it is. Have those difficult conversations. I know we don't want to, but you know what? That's what, that's what part of being a saint's all about. We got to say and do these things that make us feel uncomfortable. That's how we lead people into these pearly gates. This is how we lead people on the streets paved with gold. And then it ends verse 27, but nothing unclean shall enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood. You know, we have nothing unclean is going to enter into heaven. This is why we have purgatory. This is why we as Christians believe that we must repent of our sins. This is why we go to confession. This is why I challenge you to go to confession at least every month. Get clean. Become pure. Nothing impure is going to enter into heaven. Christ wants to make us pure, but it's not always an instant thing that happens all of a sudden. Christ leads us down a pathway of healing and of cleansing. Yes, he makes us pure, but if we fall into sin again, he has to make us pure again, and that requires humility on our part to turn to him and say, Jesus, you are the divine mercy. I want to know you again. I repent. I go to confession. I receive absolution from the priest. I do that really embarrassing thing that you've asked us to do. I say my sins to another person in a confessional. And I do it. It makes me uncomfortable and it helps me feel the shame of my sin, but it also helps me feel the wave of your divine mercy when he says, I absolve you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I know that my forgiveness is ratified in heaven. It's official. So there it is, Revelation 21, lots of peace, lots of comfort. He's going to wipe away the tears. He's going to do away with death. He's going to bring us into a beautiful place. We are his bride, and he wants to put jewelry all over us. He can't wait to put gold and pearls and jasper and diamonds and sapphire. He just wants to bedeck us with everything beautiful. And as we learned in the in a previous episode, he wants to clothe us in white linen, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. He wants to see us beautiful. He is like a young man who, like I was on my wedding day, I couldn't wait to see my beautiful, young, pure wife, pure wife in her pure white dress walking down the aisle to be with me at the altar. That's what Jesus Christ longs for when he looks down and sees us. So let's be that pure bride for him. All right, good. Well, hey, next time we're going to look at Revelation 22. It begins with the, the river of the water of life, and then it ends with a epilogue and a final benediction for all of us who have been studying and reading the book of Revelation. Until next time, remember that our Lord Jesus Christ said that you are the light of the world and the salt of the earth, so go out there and be salty.
podcast was brought to you by the New St. Thomas Institute. Discover online Catholic classes and earn your certificate in Catholic theology at the New St. Thomas Institute. To register for online Catholic classes, please visit newsaintthomas.com. That's newsaintthomas.com.